two things. During this time of counting the Omer, those of you who haven't noticed, we're reading Psalms of Ascent, which you should be reading at home as you're going through this time. So that's how the Psalms are picked. The reason I read the James portion today has to do with how God works in his church and what the impediments are to that working. It says, why are you not getting the things that you ask for? Because you're not asking for things that God wants you to have. You're asking for stuff so that you can spend it on yourself. What I want to talk to you about in reference to this season we're in is scriptural patterns. And I will tell you that about 75% of this is going to be a teaching as opposed to sermon, and we'll do the sermon at the end. I haven't taught Midrash in a while, and I'm sort of getting itchy. All right, patterns. God establishes patterns, and he writes them down in Scripture. And as you see those patterns, you will find that they are used consistently throughout the Bible. So the first time you see a pattern... If you recognize that pattern, you will then notice that it gets used over and over and over again as we go through Scripture. Stuff will be added to it, it'll be embellished, and so forth, but the basic pattern stays underneath. And the way the rabbis would say that is history is prophecy. What that means is if you read the history of Israel, what you are reading is also prophetic because the things that happen historically happen again and again and again, and they just get embellished and made larger, but the basic pattern will continue. So let me give you some examples. The pattern of exile. Israel periodically goes into exile. It started with Abraham before the birth of Isaac. Remember, he's in the land, wandering around, doing all this stuff in the land, and all of a sudden, there's a famine. He goes down to Egypt. In exile, he gets afflicted. Pharaoh picks up his wife and takes her into his harem. God then delivers Abraham, talks to Pharaoh, and says, Ah, 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 give her back, because I'm not going to go with you if you do. And then... Abraham comes out of exile back into the land with great wealth. Same thing happens to Jacob. Jacob goes into exile. Remember, he steals the blessing from his brother, gets sent into exile, he goes into exile. He's afflicted there. In fact, he's made a virtual slave for 20-some-odd years to his uncle. Then he comes out of there with great wealth. God deals with Laban. Remember, Laban is trying to chase him down. And God comes to Laban and says, don't touch him. And so when Laban finally catches up, he says, I was going to rattle your chain, but God said, don't do it, so I won't. The thing that gets added to Jacob is the conflict with Esau. So as he comes back, he's got to deal with Esau. And one of the things that you'll see is that as Israel comes back, he still has to deal with Esau in the form of the Arabs now. But each time he comes back, he receives opposition from the descendants of Esau. The other thing that Jacob does is while he's in exile, he divides his house in two. As he's standing there waiting to cross the river and waiting for his brother to show up, he divides his house into two camps. So when Israel goes into exile, they go into exile as two camps. 
The northern kingdom goes into exile under the Assyrians. The southern kingdom goes into exile under the Babylonians, but they are split now into two camps in exile. Israel then comes back from Babylon, but Israel doesn't come back entirely. Only Judah and the people who are with Judah come back. And they come into the land. They stay there for a relatively short period of time. And the reason that they come back is for a messianic event. That's when Yeshua gets born. And then immediately it's back out into exile under the Romans. So Israel has been in exile for over 2,000 years. And when Israel comes back from exile... Who leads coming back? Judah. Judah leads coming back. Judah goes into exile with the Babylonians, spends some time out there, turns around, comes back into the land. We have the birth of the Messiah, and back it is out into exile. So now we have yet another partial return. That's what happened in 1948. You have a partial return. Who's leading? Judah, the Jews. Now, I will suggest that if the pattern holds, which I believe it will, Judah is coming back into the land for another messianic event, which is what the Christian church knows as the second coming. Then, according to Revelation, Yeshua is going to come back. What tribe is Yeshua from? Judah. So Yeshua is going to come back leading his armies, and he is going to dispossess the usurpers from the land. In this case, the land is the whole world. So you see how the pattern works? Every time it goes through, you get more stuff added. So for example, Abraham, when he went into exile, didn't divide his house. But when Jacob goes into exile, he does divide his house. So now the house is divided. You understand the stacking up, but the basic pattern stays the same. Having said that, just sort of get you in the mood here. What I'm going to talk to you about is the first and fundamental pattern. And first and fundamental are not redundant. They're two different words. You can tell they're spelled differently. It's the first pattern that we see, and it's also the fundamental pattern for everything in Scripture. And that's the pattern of three. The first thing we see is, in the beginning, God. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. God said, the Word of God came. So there's your pattern of three. And what God is telling us by that pattern is this is how I am organizing my creation. So then God creates man. Man is a creature in how many parts? Body, soul, and spirit. And those are all in the Hebrew, by the way. Takes the clay, smooshes the clay around, and sets up a man. And he breathes into it and man becomes a living or talking spirit. There's three things happen there. So the pattern of three starts there. So the next part of the pattern of three is the patriarchs. How many patriarchs are there? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is the prototype of the father. Isaac is the son of promise. Jacob is the wanderer, the one who goes out into the world looking for a bride. You see how the pattern starts there? And the pattern just keeps going. Every time it happens, it gets embellished, gets stuff added to it, but the basic pattern doesn't change. Now, 
The next thing we have is pattern of spiritual regimes. Those of you who have been around for a while have heard this. It may be new to some of you. There's three spiritual regimes. They are exile, the wilderness, and Israel in the land. In exile, it's what the Hebrews call Hester Pani, which means the hidden face. God is still watching over his people, but it isn't obvious. That's the reason that the Hebrew people have continued to exist for 3,500 years, no matter what you do to them. Because when they've been sent into exile, God is still watching over them, but his face is hidden. The next step is the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness is you have open miracles. And by the way, the transition from exile to wilderness does involve open miracles. Because how does God get his people out of Egypt? Open miracles. That's a transition between exile and the wilderness. And in the wilderness, you got manna coming down from heaven. You got water from the rock. You've got fire coming down on the mountain. You got a pillar of fire in the middle of the camp. You got a pillar of cloud over the camp. I mean, it is totally and completely obvious God is here. God is active. God has got his hand on his people and he is guiding them somewhere. So, exile, the hidden face. Then, next, the wilderness, open miracles. And then finally, Israel in the land. And there, the way the land behaves is a function of how well Israel's relationship with God is going. So when Israel is doing right, got righteous kings, righteous judgments, they're following the Torah, they're doing everything right, what happens is God blesses the place. There's water that flows down from heaven. They defeat their enemies. He drives out their enemies before them. So he doesn't do so many overt miracles as he is there blessing them. And when they fall into disobedience, idolatry and whatever, you get drought. You're up to your hips and Midianites. Things just really go bad. So that's the third spiritual regime. Exile, the wilderness, and Israel in the land. And the reason I'm saying that is where I think we are right now is exile. Estrapani, hidden face. And so what you have after 2,000 years is lots of people in lots of churches don't really expect God to do anything. They certainly don't expect to see signs and wonders, any of those kinds of things. Because they're in the wilderness, you have a hidden face. Now, Israel has started to come back. They've come back under Judah. And what I don't know, just don't know the answer to this one, is whether this is going to be the prototypical return from Babylon, where they come back in, we have a messianic event, and then the Messiah, Yeshua, on his second coming, rounds up all Israel and goes and dispossesses the people. Certainly hope that's the case. But I don't know. It's also possible Judah could be leading in a return from exile, and we're going to start the pattern again. I just don't know the answer to that. Just trying to show you where we are in this pattern. Right now we're in exile. Another pattern of three, Aaron, Melchizedek, and the church. What's the relationship among those things? Priesthood. Aaron is a priest. Who's Melchizedek? Also a priest, isn't he? 
And further, the book of Hebrews says that Yeshua is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews specifically says, since Yeshua is of the tribe of Judah, he has got no right whatsoever to sacrifice in the tabernacle or the temple. It's closed off to him. That's the venue for the sons of Aaron. The venue for the priest according to the order of Melchizedek is the tabernacle in heaven of which the earthly one is a copy. And he brings a special sacrifice. He doesn't bring bulls and goats. He brings his own blood. The church. What does the scripture say? You are all priests. But you're not a priest according to the Aaron, unless you happen to be a descendant of Aaron. I mean, some of you may actually be descendants of Aaron. But the church itself are not priests according to the order of Aaron. You're not a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There's only one of those, maybe two, but I think it's just one. I think Melchizedek in the Old Testament is a pre-incarnate appearance of Yeshua. But reasonable people can differ on that. But the point is, you're not a priest according to that order. You're not authorized to sacrifice in that tabernacle. You're not authorized to sacrifice in the temple. What you are is authorized to bring the sacrifice of praise. That's your order of sacrifice. And by the way, the sacrifice of Yeshua, your sacrifice of praise in no way negates or invalidates the temple service under the priesthood of Aaron. Three completely different priesthoods, three completely different venues, three completely different tables of sacrifice, three completely different purposes. Again, notice the pattern of three. One more thing and then I'll move on. Time. In the beginning, past, where you are now, present. What's the next one? Future. Pattern of three again. Time, as it flows, is organized in the same pattern, past, present, and future. Pattern of seven. That one is also established pretty early, isn't it? Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, Shabbat. The pattern of seven is established at the beginning. What pattern of seven does is it establishes God's organization on time. So the first time we see it is the seven days of creation and then Shabbat, right? The next time we're going to see it is the seven appointed times of God. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Shavuot, Yom Teruah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. How many did I just do? Seven. So this is how God organizes time on top of past, present, and future. In other words, the fundamental flow of time is past, present, and future, and now what God has done is established on top of that a pattern of seven. And that gets used consistently also. The thing about Scripture is as you recognize these patterns, what happens is Scripture just opens up. Remember two times ago when I was talking to you about the book of Mark? How is Mark organized? Pattern of three. Book of John is organized on the pattern of seven. The book of Revelation is organized on the pattern of seven. John's a priest. John's job is to keep track of the appointed times and do the stuff that's necessary at the appointed times. So when John organizes his gospel, it's the pattern of seven because that's what a priest is concerned with. When Mark organizes his gospel, it's the pattern of three because that's fundamental. So. 
Let's do the pattern of power. The pattern of power, the first thing that you need is the will of the Father. The second thing you need is the word of the Son. The third thing you need is the power of the Spirit. So what Yeshua says in the Gospels is, I don't do anything except what God wants me to do. That's it. The only thing I do is what he tells me to do. And so when he tells me to do something is I then speak, because I'm the Word, and my words, since they are in accordance with what Father wants to have happen, are then ratified by the Spirit in power and stuff happens. The lame are healed, blind are healed, on and on and on. But the pattern of power is the will of the Father, the Word of the Son, and then execution by the Spirit. Now, whose image did I just say we were made in? God. What does Yeshua say in the Gospel? And I'll read it to you if you don't remember. John, chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What kind of works is he doing? He's doing the works that his Father desires in the power of the Spirit. So what he says in John is, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Why will he do it? For the glory of the Father. Remember, we were reading James earlier, and James says, you guys are asking for stuff, but you're asking for the wrong reasons. You're not asking to glorify the Father. You're asking to get stuff. So James says, your prayers aren't working. And the reason they aren't working is you aren't following the pattern of power. That's what James is saying. That's why I read James. So, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, in the name of Jesus, or in the name of Yeshua, is not just a postage stamp you stick on your prayer to make sure it gets up to heaven. What you are doing is you are saying, I am praying according to my understanding of the will of the Father, and I am doing it in the name of the Son, so that the Father may be glorified, and I am therefore asking the Spirit to make it work. That's the pattern of power. So, why am I talking about this? And why doesn't this work sometimes? Well, there are three reasons. Everybody see what I did there? There are three reasons why it doesn't work. Reason number one is ignorance. You don't know what the will of God is. You've got no idea what God wants to happen in any given circumstance. Partially because you haven't read the book, and that's one of the reasons that I like this church, is because we use the entire book. There's stuff in the Old Testament that applies today, not just the New Testament. Second reason is you don't know the patterns. You don't understand how God does things. Remember I told you he does things in patterns, and once he gives you that pattern, he uses the pattern consistently. So you don't know what the will of God is, and you don't know what the patterns are, and you don't know your place, which is to say you don't understand what your function is in God's economy. And what Yeshua did is he came and he showed you what your function is, because he is, in engineering terms, a transducer. 
And what he is as a human being is you got the will of the Father up here and it's God's policy that he does things through people. You look at the miracles in Scripture and it's always somebody doing something, raising a rod, smacking something with a rod, using his voice. It's always through a person that God's power flows. So what Yeshua is doing is showing you what it means to be a transducer or a conductor of God's power. He knows the will of God. He uses his voice and his hands to express the will of God in the world, and then the Holy Spirit executes. That will work for you too, assuming you know what the will of God is, and assuming that you recognize that you are a conductor. So the second reason things don't work is sin. Good old-fashioned garden variety sin. And what that means is you may know what the will of God is, but you just don't want to do it. Poster child for that is Saul, in 1 Samuel. God said, all right, Saul, I want you to go out and slay all them Amalekites, every one of them, man, woman, child, sheep, ox, goats, burn everything down, nothing left, eradicate them. Well, what does Saul do? Saul goes and kills them all, man, woman, but he saves King Agog alive. And he saves the best of the sheep and the goats and so forth and the cattle because we want to bring them as a sacrifice. And so when Samuel finally shows up and says, uh, why didn't you do what God said? Saul says, I did what he said. And then my favorite line of all scripture, Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? That's sin. Knew the will of God, knew what he was supposed to do, didn't do it. And sin will interrupt your ability to be a conductor for the Word of God into the power of the Spirit. No problem with the will of God. No problem with the power of the Spirit. And the example I always use is plenty of power in the power plant. The light bulbs all work, but there's a switch back there. And if the switch is turned off, we get no light. You're the switch. And you can turn yourself off by sin. You can cease to become an effective switch. And the other part of that, of course, you may understand your place and so forth, but the question becomes whose will will be done? It's going to be my will or it's going to be his will? And I've got to confess to you, brothers and sisters, that my will often gets in the way of his will. It happens to all of us. And don't get me wrong, there are things that you can do according to your own will that are just fine. The fact that your will is involved in here is not in itself sinful. He gave you a will and expects you to use it, but not in conflict with his. And that goes back to the ignorance question. Do you know what his will is? And if it's the case that you do know what his will is and you don't do it, then your will is in conflict with his. But if it's the case you don't know what his will is, you're ignorant and you may try and do something that is inadvertently in conflict with his will and that won't work either. The fact that you're ignorant of his will doesn't obligate God to do anything for you. And then the final impediment, we've got ignorance, we've got sin, and the third impediment is interference. We live in a spiritual battleground. Remember, one of the things that happens as Israel is coming out of the wilderness, who do they meet? The Amalekites. And the Amalekites are trying to prevent them from going into the land. 
Jacob, remember, when he comes back from Haran, runs into Esau. And by the way, Amalek is a descendant of Esau. So as Jacob is trying to come back, he hits Esau. As Israel is trying to come back from Egypt, they hit Amalek, which is a descendant of Esau. And the Amalekites resist them. There are giants in the land. So you've got to go up and you've got to slay those giants. So there's all sorts of resistance that we have as we are trying to do God's will. Expect it. You're going to run into giants. You're going to run into Amalek. You're going to run into Satan. You're going to run into a spirit of fear, which, by the way, is where most of the world is living right now. Everybody's terrified by design. The whole purpose of all this exercise is to terrify you. And not you, but you, humanity. So, ignorance, sin, and interference. Those will keep you from expressing the power of God. Now, why am I talking about this? Because right now, we are in a season where we're coming up to the giving of the power of God to His people. And what I'm hoping that we'll do is we will get ourselves prepared so that when we hit Shavuot, which is the giving of power, we're going to be ready to accept it. We're going to be ready to take it. We're going to be ready to use it for His glory. That's why I'm talking about this today. That's why I'm trying to show you these patterns. That's why I'm trying to get you to understand where we are in the pattern and get you to understand what happens next. Because if you're prepared, you're able to use the power of God. And the problem with Israel as they stood at the bottom of the mountain is Israel wasn't ready. Remember, God started to speak and Israel said, Whoa, stop. Moses, you go up and find out what he's got to say and you come back and talk to us. We'll we'll listen to you. We ain't going to listen to him. We'll die if that happens. Israel was not ready. So you have the upper room where again, the power of God fell on his people. And by the way, I have no idea what this means, but I'll read it to you anyway. This has been one of my questions for a long time. At the end of Luke, Yeshua says to his disciples, You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In other words, there's going to be an event. And it's going to give you power. But if you read the same thing on John, John 20, Yeshua said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. So before Pentecost, Yeshua breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I personally believe that if the Messiah himself breathes on you and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, you got the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that he's misfiring here. Yet, in the same event in Luke, he's saying, all right, now, parenthesis, you've got the Holy Spirit, which he gave you. Hang around here until you get the power. I have no idea what that means. Just don't. But I'll give it to you anyway. So, the deal on Pentecost is that's when we get the power. The disciples have had the Holy Spirit for some period of time before Pentecost. And they've been told, hang out here until you get the power. So the power seems to be somehow separate from 
the indwelling of the Spirit. I don't know how to work that, but I'm just telling you. And so what I'm suggesting is learn what the pattern of power is. Learn what the pattern of three is. Learn what the pattern of seven is. Because in the pattern of seven is when he gives us the power. The fourth of the Moedim. The fourth of the appointed times. That's when the power shows up. And we need to be ready for it. So, how do you defeat Amalek? Come on, you all know the story. Moses holds up his hands, right? And I'm suggesting to you, Moses isn't doing magic. What Moses is doing is he is on the top of a bluff, overlooking the battle. And when Israel is focused down, they lose. When Israel focuses up, they win. So the question is, where's your focus going to be as we go through this? Where's your focus going to be on Shavuot? Are you going to be looking up so that you can defeat the enemy? Or are you going to be looking around in fear? Yeshua himself says, you will do greater works than he does. Now, that is greater in quantity, not in quality. In other words, he's got many, 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 many millions of us. There was one of him. And as a man, there were only so many people he could actually lay his hands on. We're now his hands. And there are millions of us. So when he says, you're going to do greater works than I did, what he's saying is, I expect all of you to flow in the power of my Father's will and spirit and do the kinds of things that I did. That's what he's saying. That's what your job is. That's what your place is in God's creation. You are a conductor between the will of God and the physical world. And so if you know the will of God and you are not having any of these interferences, you should be able to do the things that God does. And I'll close with one passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 19. This is Paul. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but of power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And modify a little bit one thing he said. Talk is what releases the power. That's what your voice does, is it releases that power. But idle chatter doesn't. So, get yourself ready for Shavuot, three weeks out. Get yourself ready to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and get yourself ready to do greater works than he did. <laughs>